All right. Well, as you uh, may have heard there in my prayer, the, uh, the flow of this class, man as uh, the origin of man, which I believe Bryson taught that first week, and then man as the image of God, which our brother Dave Sutton tossed last week, and now man as male and female, all of that comes from Genesis 1.27. So we're basically just kind of walking through Genesis 1.27, which says, so God created man in his own image. Pause. Origin of man. Man is created, divinely created by God. Next, in the image of God, he created him. Bang. Man as God's image, as an image bearer of God. The third line there in Genesis 127, separated here, front-loaded in Scripture, is male and female, he created them. Man as male and female. So that's been the flow and the order of the week so far. And so that's where we're drawing it from. We're not trying to be too creative. That's why the class has been laid out the way that it is. Um, so real quick side note, if you're Satan, would you not go right after those three truths that are given right from the beginning of the pages of Scripture, Genesis 1.27? Is man truly created? Is he truly made of God? Is he not evolved from somewhere and something else? Is man, is his identity truly to be found in God, in Christ, or, or someplace else? Where do we find our image, our identity of who we are? Uh, male and female, really, are, are those the way that we are to think about God's creation and gender and sexuality? Are, are you sure about that? If, if you think about it, it makes sense that Satan's going to go after the very thing that God tries to put in the forefront here of Scripture for us. And, and because of that, um, you guys can pray for me as I teach this because... My hope this morning is, is to kind of lay out, kind of the focus of this class, is to say, okay, what do we see in the creation account is where we're going to focus when it comes to man as male and female. There are so many implications of this. There's so many good discussions to have about, about gender roles when it comes to the church and marriage and family and how to live as a single man and a single woman in society. And what does that look like as far as roles in society and what does that not look like? All wonderfully helpful and good, rich conversations to have. Uh, I, I find myself tempted to want to go there and add, you know, all kind of nuance upon nuance. We're going to try to stay, you know, home base here in the early pages of Scripture because this foundation, man is male and female, we have to be clear on this because it has significant implications for those conversations. We can't have those conversations well if we're not grounded here as our home base and as our foundation. Also, because of the fall, because of sin, which we'll talk about, this conversation about male and female has become very, very painful for many. Very painful. The, the ways in which uh, there is a confusion around what this means, even in our own lives and desires that might be there that don't seem to match with our biology, or the ways in which, as you know, God has, and we'll see here in the creation account, has given man that unique role and responsibility to lead and to lead well in a God-glorifying direction, and for a woman to help and be a helper in that direction as well, that has been abused and misused time and time again. And this is a painful thing for some. And so I just want to mention that on the front end that I know that this can be a painful topic. And so don't set those things to the side, but let's kind of keep those things in mind as we also together look at these early pages of Scripture and just kind of seeing what it says clearly to us. Uh, because there's going to be many implications for us here and also even for our identity and, and who we are. Right? Part of my identity is that I am a man. What does that mean? What does that not mean? How do I think about that as I wrestle through my own desires? 
All right, so let me pause there and, uh, and also, man, Bryson, help me keep an eye on time as well. I'm going to try not to spend too much time. There's so much that can be said. I had to cut so much out, uh, but hopefully we get some good <clears throat> just kind of things to hold on to as we go. <clears throat> so in general, kind of a brief overview of Genesis 1 and 2. You may have heard this already. One way to think about these opening chapters of Scripture, Genesis kind of 1, 1 to 2, 3 is essentially like, you can think about it like a prologue to the story that begins in Genesis 2, 4. The generations of, the generations of. And so the generations of the heavens and earth and, uh, and then ultimately of Adam, we'll see kind of later in Scripture. All throughout Genesis, you'll see the generations of. And so there is a way in which Genesis 1 is kind of a high-level overview of the creation account. First three days, God's kind of preparing a habitat that in the, the last three days he inhabits. He puts people. So there's kind of preparation and, and population that's happening there in Genesis 1. Genesis 2, there's going to be a zoom lens that's going to happen on the pinnacle of the, create, of the creation account, which is man, man as male and female. And so Genesis 2 is going to take this lens, you know, kind of the high level that Genesis 1 set up, and it's going to put it on in a little like a zoom. And now we're going to focus on that particular aspect of man in his creation. And hopefully we'll see some things that begin to emerge. One is where man and woman are similar are the same in the most important realities and in the most important ways. And then we're going to see the ways in which men and women are different in this creation account. Now, I'll say at the front end that this creation account, as we'll see, the context here specifically is man and woman ultimately in a marriage relationship. So it's ultimately in a marriage relationship. That's what's being spoken of here. I will mention how that has implications even for us in our single lives as men and women. But I do want to remember that that's important. That's what's happening here, this marriage relationship. It doesn't mean that there's no connection whatsoever now for us to live as men and women as singles. And I also know this can be something where, you know, there could be questions. Okay, what does that mean for me in, in my role in, in life, in the body of Christ, in society? We'll touch on some of those things. But it is important to remember here that the created account here has implications for all of us, regardless of our lot and our season of life. And so kind of keep that in mind as we get into it. Um, so again, Genesis 1 gives an orderly account of creation. Genesis 2 gives an orderly account of man as male and female. There is order at the beginning of creation. That stood in total contrast to other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation. It was total chaos. It was nuts. And out of the chaos came all of a sudden some type of <laughs> cohesion. That's not at all what God says in Genesis 1 and 2. He is in control and he's ordering things rightly and good. All right, so let's begin now with some of the things that we see, the similarities that we see in Genesis 1. Can someone read for us Genesis 1, 27 through 31? Genesis 1, 27 to 31. Go ahead and read that for us, whoever gets there, and would like to loudly boom that to the whole class. Very good. And 
there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All right, so, so here we have it again, Genesis 1.27, which we touched on, and then Genesis 1.28, this creation mandate that's given. <coughs> Notice how much you see them, right? And God blessed them. God said to them. And then in verse 29, Behold, I have given you, that's a plural you. And at the end of verse 29, that you shall have them for food. That's a plural you. So both man and woman at the beginning are made in the image of God. They are the exact same in worth and in dignity. They are to be co-rulers, to have joint rule over the created order. God has called man and woman to do that. You think then the connection of 1 Peter 3, 7, where Peter talks about how men and women are co-heirs in Christ. Worth and dignity, that which is similar, that which is of the utmost importance, are the absolute same. Man and woman created with the same worth and the same dignity. That has significant implications that, again, when sin gets a hold of it, has destroyed. And yet, and yet God can redeem it back to what he created here in the early pages of Genesis. And so, before the fall, right, this is pre-fall. Things are good. Creation is good. Work is good. The garden is good. Male and female is good. It was God's idea. And it's a good idea. And it's a good created order. I think there's a helpful uh, quote there. Sorry, I have so many just random notes and quotes from over the years, and sometimes I do a better job referencing them than others. I think these quotes are from um, uh, a pastor he might not be pastoring any longer, but Ray Ortland, O-R-T-L-U-N-D. He wrote a, an article uh, years back that I thought was a helpful quote that he mentioned here. Man was created as royalty in God's world, male and female alike bearing the divine glory equally. Now, it's important to remember here that in Moses' day, as Moses is writing this, it would have been radically, a radical concept that man and woman were equal. That this is a radical, radical concept for Moses' day. And yet, you see throughout the creation and throughout the pages of Scripture, there's an interdependence of male and female. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12 speaks of this, right? The, the Lord, uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, which we'll see, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. There's an interdependence here between men and woman. So the end of Genesis 1, we get there. There is equality among the sexes as God's image bearers and vice rulers joint rulers of the earth. That, that's clear. That's foundational. Anywhere we go, anything that seems to push against that or speak differently about that, we've, we're missing it. We, we've missed it when it comes to worth, when it comes to dignity. And so there are things that are similar, and those are similar. Those are the same, and they are the most foundational truths to hang on to. Now, as we get into Genesis 2, we hear at the end of Genesis 1 that man was created, male and female, but it does not give us much detail. That detail is going to pick up here in Genesis 2-7 because there are significant and important and good differences that we're going to see between male and female, Adam and Eve here in the garden. All right, so someone read for us. Uh, let's do Genesis 2. Let's do verses uh, 7 to 9. Made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, thank you, Kevin. Let me also read verses 15 to 17 here, which says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right, so pause here. There's already some differences that begin to emerge just from this, just from the order of how we're reading this creation account here in Genesis 2. Um, <clears throat> Cody's going to unpack this idea of the living creature of body and soul uh, next week, Genesis 2-7. But a couple observations that we see here that will turn into important differences between man and woman in the creation account. Number one, the man was created first, right? That's clear in what's being said here. The man was created first. Now let's pause here. Does first mean better? Are we sure? Does first mean better? No, because that would contradict what we just talked about in Genesis one 27 and 28. First does not mean better. But there's going to be an important difference in why there's a responsibility given to the man being born first. Okay, so first does not mean better. No contradiction here so far. Another interesting thing to note, the man was created outside the garden. So you'll note that here um, in, let's see, which verse was where he put him into the garden. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So man was created outside the garden. We'll see when we see the uh, creation account of the woman, she was created inside the garden. And there seems to be a significance there that many have picked up on. That again, man, this initial uh, call to man to like work and keep and to expand and grow the garden. And the woman being born in the garden to help that flourish and to help nurture that and bring life to that which man is trying to kind of till and work and keep the garden and to bring life. They are working together to bring about the fullness of life in the garden. I think that's an interesting observation that does seem to fit. Also notice here, God, this initial command that God gave about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not eating it, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Notice Eve has not been created yet. God gave this command directly to Adam. The you there is singular. Adam, when you eat of this fruit, you, as the representative man, will surely die and bring death into the world and the created world. The command is given to Adam. So already we see in which there's a way in which there is some spiritual leadership being given to Adam. This is a command, Adam. Now when Eve is created, you need to, to make sure that that teaching of Scripture is clear and right. And then as we'll see here in a little bit, as then Eve is to help Adam to hold the line, to keep the command. To, to be in his role of almost this priest-like role of leading the family spiritually because God has given that initial command to Adam. And so it's Adam's obedience that would ultimately bring blessing and his disobedience that would ultimately bring the fall, which we'll look at here. It's very interesting, the order of things in Genesis 3. All right, so now let's kind of rewind a little bit here. So back to uh, the woman not being created yet. That was a problem for Adam. That was a problem for the man, right? Because what does Genesis 2.18 says? It says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Notice, I think it's important. It doesn't say that he's lonely. It's not that he's experiencing loneliness emotionally. We don't see that necessarily here in the passage. He's got God. He's got perfect fellowship with God the Father. 
is doing well there, but there's something that's not good about him being alone. What is that? Why is it not good that he's alone? Because he cannot fulfill the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 27 and 28 without a helper. He needs help. Adam cannot fulfill his purpose in the world without the woman. And so just to make sure that, you know, God is very clear here to make sure that this is clear to him, the specific helper, the helper that will be fit for him, God trots out all of the animals for him in verse 19. And then he says, all right, Adam, name all of these, all of these creatures, all these animals. Now let me pause there. That's also a significant difference. Adam was given that responsibility to name the animals, to name the creatures. The responsibility will eventually be on Adam to name the woman, which he'll do two times. Why is that important? Again, you can see a way in which Adam, there's just like with parents who name their children. That's a weighty and important responsibility that's given there. So in this creation account, Adam is the one naming. That's a difference that's there. Does that mean better? Does that mean worse? It does not. Does that mean he has a greater responsibility that's being put on him so far? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we can see some of these differences begin to emerge. And so um, with, uh, with that, God, when he recognizes and Adam recognizes there's not a helper fit for him, what does God do? God takes over. God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. It's the same kind of sleep that you'll see Abraham have in Genesis 15. It's the kind of sleep that carries this idea that there's a revelation about to happen and it emphasizes the doing of that act is completely of God. Man has nothing to do with it. Man has nothing to do with it. This is a complete act of grace by God that Eve was created. This is a complete act of God that he is going to create a helper, a help meet fit for Adam to fulfill this calling that he has given from the beginning. And so man was not yet fully the image of God. It hadn't quite happened yet. Because there's a relational aspect to God's image that cannot be contained in one person, Adam. It even could not be contained in one couple, Adam and Eve, because he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply the earth. Billions of people it's going to take to even begin to capture the fullness of God's image. And so the man wakes up, and how does he respond to God's act of grace to him? How does he view the woman? Does Adam view the woman as kind of a less than and like, okay, welcome to the party. Here's your marching orders. I'm in charge here. Now, what does he say? Someone read for us Genesis 23, which, by the way, is a song. It's literally in the form of a song. So you don't have to sing it, but someone read for us Genesis <laughs> 2, 23. You're welcome to, but you can read it normal, too. All right, so man here, there's like an exclamation point in this, right? Man is amazed how perfect this helpmeet was. At last! At last! And you can see now the similarity. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh in a way that's totally different, totally separate from the rest of the created order. That's captured here in his naming, right? These, you may have heard the original words here where uh, man is ish, ish, and woman is isha. There's a connection. There's a close kindredness there. By God's grace, the English language has held on to that. Man and woman, close connection. And he is thankful. He is so excited to hear and see a perfect helper for me. 
now I can do what God has called me to do ultimately and finally. Now, it's interesting, just a quick side note, in any of the, again, the, when I say ancient Near Eastern, that just means the time of the Genesis accounts. There was a bunch of other, uh, there were some other key creation accounts in other cultures that had some similarities but were different than the creation account of Genesis. Any other creation account outside the Bible does not at all touch on the creation of woman. They just don't think it's that important. So again, from the jump, the Bible is putting worth and dignity on man and woman that is distinct from the surrounding culture around them. I think that's a significant point as well. And so Adam here is naming her, right? Isha from man. It points to her her origin, her source, taken from me, taken from the man. And then also even after the fall, he names her Eve, Genesis 4.20 says, the mother of all living. He sees how significant, he sees how important her role is to help fulfill this particular aspect of the creation mandate. All right. Um, Let's see. All right, and then uh, let's go ahead and finish out uh, Genesis 2 here. Uh, Someone read for us Genesis 24 and 25 to kind of bring this thing uh, to to the close of Genesis 2, and then we'll make some comments on differences and similarities. Go ahead and read that for us, uh, verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Yeah, so again, this is good here. And notice, who is it that is to leave and cleave, to leave his family to go pursue the woman? The man. There's an initiating aspect here with Adam. Okay, so already we've seen that Adam was created first. Adam was given the command directly from God. Adam was the one who was naming the the creatures, the created order, and named Eve. We see that, right? And we also see from the beginning at the end of Genesis 1 that they are to both together subdue the creation, be fruitful, and multiply the earth. So they are joint rulers over this creation. So we see some differences, but we also see the most important a distinction there in how it is that they are to carry out this role together. All right, uh, real quick, I'm going to just touch on Genesis 3 because the fall and the way that the curses of the fall lay out also have significant implications for understanding the differences between man's role and woman's role here in the garden. Uh, so first off, notice that uh, the, the way that God has set this up in Genesis 2 is that God was, as far as headship, it was God, man, woman. That's what we see in in the garden, right? And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Godly good headship, God over man, is that man can flourish. Man can grow and be equipped to grow in the ways in which God has called him. Godly male headship is that women, those who are, are leading in this marriage relationship in particular, can flourish grow and their giftings can be utilized and used to the fullest in God-honoring ways. Things get flipped on their head in Genesis 3, right? And then man together, we're supposed to be over the created order. Things get flipped. Satan comes in, a creature, right? As a serpent. He speaks to Eve in a way that's like, hey, Eve, are you sure you've understood what God said? So now we have the serpent, the created order, speaking to woman, in a sense, trying to lead her. And then Eve, right, what happens next? She hands the fruit to Adam, who takes and eats it. So now you have the serpent leading Eve, who then led, at, who then led Adam, who both had completely forgotten about God and put him and his word beneath them. 
the entire thing gets flipped on its head. It's one of the things that makes the fall so grotesque is that the entire created order, it's flipped on its head. That is where this is the source of where the pain and why this topic of male and female is so hard and so painful is because of the fall, is because of the fall. And then even when we see the, the, the distinctions of Genesis 2 are not lost, though, because um, when, when God says in the end of verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's a singular, singular word in the Hebrew. You, singular pronoun. Adam, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Verse 11, God said, who told, who told you, singular, that you, singular, were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, singular, not to eat? He's calling Adam to account. There is a greater responsibility here for Adam. He is not greater in worth. He is not greater in dignity. His responsibility, though, and Satan knows this. Satan knows that he had to get to Adam. It wasn't until Adam ate the fruit that their eyes were opened. He knew he had to get to Adam. The responsibility was placed on him. And Satan found a way... Eve was, Adam should have cast the serpent out of the garden. He was there to protect it, to keep it, and to protect Eve, and to say, no, Eve, that's not truth. We need to reject that. We need to go to God for grace and mercy and forgiveness that there was even temptation there. That didn't happen. Eve was to help Adam and go, Adam, there's a serpent in the garden. He's trying to lead us astray. Where are you? You should be protecting and leading. That would have been a healthy way for this to play out, but sin flips everything on its head. And then we begin to see the curse even itself, the way that the curse plays out for man and woman seems to hit directly on their roles. For the man now, the ground, right? The ground that he was to keep is now going to be extremely painful and extremely difficult for him. The garden that God put him in to keep, they are not going to be banished from, which is ultimately the the presence of God in all of its fullness. They're not going to be banished from. The woman, there's going to be the pain in childbearing, right? The be fruitful and multiply the earth. The implications here of literal physical image bearers throughout the created order, that's going to be painful and hard for her. This desire that's spoken of here when it says that, uh, you know, for, for Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Again, there's a direct correlation to Genesis 4-7, which speaks of how sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, is to rule over you. It's the same idea here. Now for the woman... This is not going to be a good thing. That's going to be without strife, without this complete, where the, the man is now going to be marked by sin as he seeks to lead. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. There's going to be desires now in the woman that's going to make that leadership hard for the man. And there's going to be now conflict. Marital conflict begins here. Marital conflict begins here. Battles between male and female. And what does man and woman begin here? This is the origin. This is the source of all of it here in Genesis 3. So you can see a way in which the fall happened, right? There was implications for all of the created order. But for mankind, man is male and female. That plays out differently because of the different roles that God has given us to carry out the call that he has given us. And now you're going to see that you know, play out as well where Adam still remains that representative head, right? Adam, his name Adama is the the word for ground. He came from the ground. So there's Adam now. And that word Adam becomes kind of central for mankind. Why? Romans 5. We are all physical descendants of Adam. We're all physical descendants. The sin ultimately came through Adam because that was his ultimate responsibility. 
Romans 5, now that's why it contrasts Adam to Jesus, the new man, the firstborn of a new creation. We are not physical descendants of Jesus. Some of us maybe in some crazy family tree are. That's interesting. If you are, I'd love to talk to you. But we are all the firstborn of a new creation. He's the firstborn of a new creation, so we now are born in Christ, our representative head as well. And so, similar, worth, dignity, no questions, different in roles and responsibilities as we consider, okay, what does this look like now in marriage? And then the Bible is clear now when it comes to, you know, roles in marriage, roles in the church, becomes less clear in conversations around what does that look like in society? And those are, again, all good conversations to have. We have equipping hour classes around that. But here we're just trying to look and see, okay, what is this creation account telling us? So again, in summary here, a difference in role does not equal a difference in value and worth. A difference in role does not equal a difference in value and worth. We've got to remember that even for our own lives, no matter what role God has given us. If we are doing all things as unto him, and I believe it's Ephesians 6, 8 that says every good thing you do, God's writing it down. It's being recorded. No matter what your role is. Every God-honoring thing you do. So role does not equal difference in value and worth. There's not any necessary relation between personal role and personal worth. We have to remember that in every sphere of life that God has given us. Also, equal does not mean indistinguishable. It doesn't mean now there's no distinction. There's no important distinctions between male and female. What's the big deal? We can all do the same things all the time. doesn't matter. Now, there are important distinctions that we have to think well about together as the body of Christ as we try to apply this truth in light of a fallen world as a people who are being redeemed. Now, because of the fall, there's ways in which there's ways in which the fall can mark men by either now taking this idea of you know, headship and marriage in particular and turning that into domination. You've been created to serve me and to serve all my needs and all my whims and to never challenge me in any way, shape, or form. Sin can do that. Sin can also do this to man. Complete passivity. Complete passivity. Guidance, direction, leadership, trying to make hard decisions. I'm out. I'm out. I don't want that responsibility. You want me to try to lead and shepherd? But what if the wolves come? Wolves bite. I don't want to get bit. I'm not going to try to defend that. I'm not going to try to stand on truth and figure out what truth is. I'm not going to try to protect and lead and guide. And then for the woman, what can that look like? It can look like, I mean, think of even, uh, it can either be on the passive side, a passive like, I can't say anything to him. I shouldn't say anything to him. It's all me. It's all my problem. But God has called you to be a helper, to help. Following does not mean silence. If, If there's a husband walking in sin, he needs help. He needs help. Body of Christ needs to know about that. He needs help. He needs that to be brought to his attention. And on the other side, it could be that domination of like, you know what, he is so incompetent. He's so clueless. Now this can turn into slander and like, you know what, I'm just going to run. I'm going to take the reins and forget him. I'm just going to run over him left and right and just, you know, demolish him verbally any chance that I get. Right? Even, you know, kind of in, in recent years sitcoms where oftentimes the dad is just kind of a clueless, aloof goofball. Well, why is that? Well, it's because, again, that's one of the patterns and ways in which sin can affect that role. And then also it's because there's a way in which, no, like if we see in that relationship, man, in the personality God's given you, in the giftings God's given you, lead, lead well. And then wife, we need your help. (laughs) 
husbands need your help. I cannot do this without you. Please help me. Please help. The number of times I've been to my wife, I'm like, I don't know what to do. This is a hard decision. Help me think about this well. Is this stupid? And I'm so thankful that the many times she's like, that is stupid. Praise God. Thank you for that. Help me think well about this. All right, so then again, this uh, last quote here, I think it's also from Orland, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, again, this is in marriage, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. That is, God calls the man with the counsel and help of the woman to see that, male fe- that the male-female partnership serves the purposes of God, not the sinful urges of either member of the partnership. All right, let me pause here. We've been talking about marriage because that's what's been spoken of here in the creation account. You're a single man. You're a single woman. What in the world does this have to do with you? What implications does this have for you as a single man, as a single woman? Is there no implication whatsoever if you're not married? Is there no distinction, nothing that's helpful to think about as a man or as a woman? I think, again, as we think about our identity, right, even think about some of the things that happen. If For those of us that struggle with desires or even when it comes to, man, I feel like a woman in a man's body. Does the fact that I have been created biologically as a man have any implication in helping me sort through that? It certainly does. It certainly does. So the created order helps us as, even as we think about just desires in general. Also, think about the ways in which all throughout Scripture, the body of Christ is spoken of as a family. We worship a single sinless Savior. Your ultimate fulfillment does not have to come and does not come in marriage, right? There's always going to be a gap between our desires and our reality. They're going to be fully dealt with in glory. The bad desires are going to be gone. The good desires are going to be fully fulfilled. So that good desire that the Bible says is a good desire for marriage, praise God for that. And also, and also, remember Jesus was the most fulfilled human being that ever walked the face of the earth. And he walked it as a single man. Paul, Paul is like, man, if you can be single, be single. There's a breadth of what you can do as a single man, single woman. That's much harder to do as a married man or woman. Now, granted, there's a depth that's unique that a man and woman can have in marriage. So there's depth, but the breadth, married people can't do as well. So breadth or depth, there's always going to be a contrast of like, Lord, which one do you want me to call are you calling me to to steward? In the early years of the church, singleness was exalted and elevated. It was viewed as more godly, more committed to the Lord. In our culture, there's a lot of pressure on marriage. Marriage is a good thing, by the way. I, I, do, I pray that more and more men who are single are, are willing to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I have that desire to be married. Lord, help me to know what that looks like to initiate, to ask a girl out, to have this conversation and accountability well. I pray, brothers, I love you. I pray that God gives that opportunity. And that desire motivation. Marriage is good. And also, singleness can be done well. Think about the way in which the distinctions of how we relate to each other as men and women do not change just because we're not married. Paul in Romans 16, 13 says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. There's a way in which Rufus's mom, as a woman in the body of Christ, has related to Paul... Sounds like she's an older woman in a motherly way. That's not disconnected from gender. 1 Timothy 1-2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul is treating Timothy like a child in the faith. And elsewhere he calls him his son in the faith. Right? He's going to treat Timothy in a son-like way. 
if Timothy was a woman, he'd treat her in a daughter-like way. What does that mean? What are the implications? Let's talk about that. Let's think well about that. But there's, there is a difference and a distinction in how we are to engage one another in these ways. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, I think, is also very instructive and helpful. So that was Romans 16, 13, 1 Timothy 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Is an older man in the church and you're a man? Talk to him in a fatherly way. Younger men, talk to them like brothers. There's a difference here. That's interesting. Older women, how? As fathers? Now talk to older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. We have to consider male and female and what that looks like as we relate to one another. And so again, there are similarities and there are differences. Now, one thing that is important to note here, again, why I've emphasized a few times the creation account is uh, man and woman in a marriage relationship. If we take from this and say, okay, every man has headship over every woman, and every woman is under the headship of every man, that, that could not be farther from the truth. <laughs> that is so wrong, brothers and sisters in Christ. If there is a single brother, single sister, if there's a brother that's talking down to a sister, like I need to take this role of teacher and authority in your life, would you lovingly encourage him? And be like, hey, brother, it's just kind of hard to receive that in the way that you're sharing that. If that's intimidating, would you reach out to a brother or sister in Christ and say, can you help me think through this? I, I, I want to help him <laughs> to not misunderstand and misuse the scriptures and how God has given it. There is a one anothering. There's a mutual one anothering that is happening there between men and women, between brothers and sisters. And so let's not get that flipped and twisted. There's not a unique responsibility given to a single man that's different in that responsibility to a single sister in how they are to engage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I, as a man, as a husband and a father, have a unique burden and responsibility placed on me that I did not have as a single man. It's, it's a unique burden. It's a unique responsibility. I, in my sin, in my flesh, I'm bent towards passivity. God, in his humor, has called me to be a husband and a father and now an elder of this church. That could not be farther from my desires. I am such a, like, in my flesh, laid back, like, man, Hakuna Matata, it'll be fine. Oh, goodness. If it's not funny, then it's not worth talking about. What are we doing here? You guys just always fight and argue. It's no big deal. The times that I've, God's been like, you need to lead. You need to make a hard decision, Danny. You need to have this hard conversation with this person as your role as an elder and take some hits. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's been hard. And guess what? My wife has helped me. You know who else has helped me? You guys have helped me. The members of the churches you prayed, right? Think about elders and members. Is there a greater worth in elders than in the members of the church? No. The only difference is the role and the responsibility. Elders cannot elder well without the prayers of the saints, without the saints encouraging them and calling them out as brothers in Christ. And elders cannot elder well if we don't hear and listen and think and say, what can it look like for flourishing to happen? So again, that's true in the marriage relationship. And then again, even in our single, for those of us who are single, as God's called us to do, there's still a way that we can relate in a familiar way that is not completely divorced from this idea of male and female that God has created us in. All right. I, man, I left out so much, which is okay, because we're coming to the end of time. So I'm just trying to make sure there's nothing in particular that I wanted to touch on and say. All right. Again, from this, I hope that you saw similarities in the creation of man as male and female, and I hope you saw differences and some of the implications of that. I'm going to pause now. I think we've got about 10 minutes 
for a Q&A for question and answer. Things that weren't clear, any BWAs, but what about? Or anything that you're like, I'm not sure I agree with that, Danny. BWAs, things that weren't clear, things you disagree with. We'll open it up. Yes, Tori. Hi. Hi. Right. I like, but I did have a question about roles. Of course, like, yeah. I see the roles of man very clear right. in Genesis. Right. Where like I, the roles of women are a little bit more unclear to me. In Genesis, in particular, yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think so, and yeah. I think I just wanted to know, like, where do people usually get that from, and is it usually just the opposite of what the man's roles were, like, were mm-hmm. clearly saved mm-hmm. to be, like? That makes sense like it, it, it does make a lot of sense. Yep, it does make a lot of sense. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of by implication, but not like where we're making stuff up by implication. So here's what I mean. The woman, and I should have mentioned this, this, this word for helper, uh, azir. Does anyone know how to pronounce Hebrew? Great, then I can say it however I want. Azir. <laughs> azir. Is that, is it, anyone? All right, anyways, azir. Helper, help me. That for her, for helper, one, real quick, why that has dignity is that's actually used of God several times throughout the Old Testament. Right? A strong ally, a helper. And also, it's clear that woman was made from man and for man to help him as a helper. Help him do what? Again, the creation mandate. Be fruitful and, and multiply. There's a physical thing that the woman can do in the creation account that the man can't do. Right? He can't do it. If the only help he needed was someone to till and work the land, God would have given him, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, fully redeemed. That's what he would have given him. Not the woman, right? Also, if there's a way in which there are qualities about the man and about the woman that will complement each other in a way that fully, more fully pictures God, she needs to help him in that way. And so, again, the implications that are there, again, man was created outside the garden. That's an implication. Am I going to firmly stand on that? That, oh, that's because the man is to work and keep, and that means he's to expand while the woman helps things be nourished and, and flourish? No, I don't think you can firmly stand on that. I think it's a reasonable implication, though, to say she was made inside the garden. To say, this place needs some work. I'm going to beautify this thing. Now, what that doesn't mean, again, we're staying in the creation account. It does not mean that men has gifted some men, or God has gifted some men to be able to see, design, and interior design in a wonderful, great, beautiful way. Right? So we're not saying, and there's other women who are amazing at, like, building and growing things. So we're not saying that that's now out the window. We're just saying in this creation account, there's a complementarity to it. And man who is an interior designer, you still need to relate to women as a man. And if you're ever called to be a husband, there's ways in which you need to take the you know, responsibility, authority there. So it's not discounting ways in which men and women could be different, ways in which cultures need to try to figure out and play out the differences and giftings between men and women. Um, every culture, there are markers that are different for the genders. But they're not universal, and I think it's a worthwhile conversation. Oh, d- is that color just reserved for man, woman? Let's talk about that. Why, why is that? Let's think about that. Well, let's go back. We always want our foundation to be here. There's important distinctions and complementarities. Why is it that man can't fulfill this without woman? Well, we need, to, we need to do some work to think about that. But she is his helper, uniquely, different than the creatures. How so? So I think that's where some of that comes from. It's not as clear. And also part of that is, I think, Adam, you need to help Eve figure that out. Lead. How is she gifted? What is it you need help with? What is your call? You help that grow and flourish in her. Lead her in that. So I think that's some of the implications. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's 
Well, praise God. I'm thankful that was helpful. Was I recording? Oh, praise God. Okay, good. No, I'm kidding. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? But what about disagreements? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Only because I literally had a dream last night where I was doing apologetics with a very smug person. Well, look at God's timing. Yeah. So, that's what I dream about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he said, first is not better. Correct. And my mind immediately jumped to Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. And yeah. that sounds better. Yeah. Is that something that, it, it feels like an, an inconsistency in our mm-hmm. logic. Mm-hmm. But I must be wrong. So, mm-hmm. tell me how I'm wrong. Sure. Yeah, is, well, I think that's a good question. It, it sounds better, but is, is it better that, because Jesus is the firstborn of creation, is that what makes him better in worth? Or does it make his role unique as the firstborn of the new creation? Now the image that we are being reformed into, everyone is made in God's image. Imaging Adam. Those who are in Christ, we're now being imaged into who? The firstborn of the new creation, into Jesus. It's a greater role, a greater responsibility. Does that make sense? Yes, so I think it's a fair distinction. It is. It's the role and responsibility I've, I've found to be helpful as we think about better or worse than. So uh, it's a great question, though. Yeah. So he was yeah, unique in being able to do that. And also that became now a great kind of unique role. Yeah. Good question. Yes, Carl. Yes. Yeah. In that same verse, it mentions mm-hmm. bear, and you husbands in the same manner bear with your wives in an understanding. Right. In an understanding way, yep. showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Yeah. What does that mean as a weaker vessel? Is it a precious vessel or mm-hmm. treat something as precious, or is that inherently mm-hmm. they are yeah. structurally weaker in some ways? Yeah. Or is that, I'm not really sure how to take that phrase. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and we could spend probably a whole class discussing the ways that people have tried to think well about that verse in ways that are not demeaning and are also not afraid to say what Scripture says. I think in general, though, some of the things I've been helped by is weaker vessel, you can even just think about, generally speaking, physically. Men who are screaming and yelling and going off on a woman, generally speaking, that's very, very intimidating. That can be very, very scary. And so there's a way in which the weaker vessel there, men, generally speaking, can be more scary and more int- intimidating physically and even in their presence than women. It does not mean that some men have not been scared by women who are very strong and very aggressive. I'm not saying that, but generally speaking, that of, again, that weaker vessel. Also, there's a delicacy and a care that's there, right? I think of even the ways we talked about how, you know, uh, Paul was telling Timothy to talk to the older women as mothers. And sisters as sisters that's different than brothers and so hey give some thought and distinction you're talking to a woman man is male and female give some thought to that there's a difference here and there's a there could be a delicacy that's there now does that mean that women are weak and can't handle it I think you can look at the pages of scripture and be like oh I'm missing that Abigail was not a weak woman <laughs> when she, you know, took over because Nabal was being a fool literally his name and went to David's like David you're acting like a fool too that's not a weak woman right there, right? And so we see all throughout the scriptures ways in which it's not meaning that. It can't mean that because that would contradict scripture. But, uh, but in that, it does go on to say that um, men's, uh, husbands' prayers can actually be hindered in the ways that they treat their wife. 
And so I think it's giving consideration to a little bit of what we're talking about. But again, let's not overstate what it says either, if that makes sense. Does that touch on it some? Yes. Yeah. Good question. Worthwhile doing a study on it. There's a lot. I mean, you could stack of books here, stack of books here on differences and how to understand it. That seems to me to map on the most with Scripture. To kind of tangentially follow up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So body and soul, and again, Cody, next week will be man is body and soul, Genesis 2-7. Uh, you can see those are the two things, right? Man is created from the, uh, from the dust of the earth he's formed, and then God breathes life into him, body and soul. I do think so, soul, if you look at it in Scripture, soul is the center of who we are. Who am I? I'm Danny Falcone. I'm a man redeemed in Christ called to serve in these roles in different ways. I think it would be strange to bifurcate, to separate body and soul completely. There's not ways in which there are desires, there are passions, there are giftings redeemed in Christ that I have that are different than if God created me a woman. So I think we want to be careful. We want to think about body and soul. It's helpful to think about them separately in some sense, but then I am Danny. I am one person. It's not that I am a man and my soul is neutral. Does the Bible say that souls are masculine or feminine? It doesn't. So we want to be careful to not go there. But I also think there's a way in which God has created me as a male. That includes an aspect of who I am in my soul. So there's going to be impulses that are there that God has kind of called me to and gifted me in that are going to be different. Hopefully there's a willingness as God redeems me to be willing to step out and protect and lead and take risks that are needed there. There's going to be roles that are, you know, for certain ladies where they need to be called to do the same, but hopefully it's not because men are shirking their responsibilities. And so I think body and soul, the one and the same, um, I don't think there's a big difference between my body and my soul. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah. That's a great question, though. All right. Well, I am uh, available. Uh, I'll stay up here for a few minutes, and also you can email me if you have any questions. If I've said anything heretical, email Chris Dish. And... uh, I will pray and send us out here. Uh, Father, we do thank you again for who you have created us to be, Father. You have given us good works to do beforehand from before the creation of the world, uniquely in who we are as male, as female, and the different roles you've created us. Lord, help us to steward, if we're single, to be single to the glory of God. If we are a husband, to be a husband to the glory of God. If we're a wife, to be a wife to the glory of God. If we are a father, to be a father to the glory of God. If we're a mother, to be a mother to the glory of God. Help us to know how to do this well in humility, guided by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.